How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. We are thrilled, thrilled, thrilled beyond description again to have Janet Parshall on the broadcast. She has been broadcasting from the nation's capital for over two decades with a passion to equip the saints through intelligent conversation. I should underline that twice in the highlight. Intelligent conversation based on biblical truth. When she's not behind a microphone, Janet is traveling. You're not traveling much with COVID, though, are you? No, COVID's changed the entire world. It has. Janet's authored several books. Her latest, Buyer Beware, Finding Truth in the Marketplace of Ideas. Janet is married to the wonderful Craig. They live outside Northern Virginia. They have four children, six grandchildren. You still have sheep? We do, and donkeys and horses. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And a partridge in a pear tree. You know, we moved to Tennessee, and I found out that people have donkeys to keep the coyotes away. Interesting you should raise that. They're called the keepers of the herd because what they do is they will attack the coyotes without thinking twice. Sheep, I have to tell you, not a compliment. Not so much. (laughs) Nope, nope, not good. Craig and I were hiking in the highlands of Scotland and this man was taking a flock of sheep across a road and they were all together and I stopped and I thought, oh, a fellow shepherd. So I talked to him and I said, oh, you must love this work. And he looked at me kind of quizzically and he said, there's not a single brain cell in the flock. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, he was not being kind talking to us about sheep, was he? Absolutely not. And we need a shepherd because all we do is huddle, by the way. This is probably a good setup as we talk about the church. All we do is huddle. We don't know uh, as sheep how to protect ourselves. So God brings in protectors. And one of those protectors are donkeys, by the way. And they will stand and they will stomp and they will attack. And we have <laughs> we have Rachel and Leah are the names of our two donkeys. <laughs> and they literally will stomp the ground. And particularly when it's calving time and lambing time, the coyotes increase their population. Yeah, and you can yeah. hear them howl and boy they get ready to keep the watch for us so it's a sunday school lesson by the way for the record i also live next door to a vineyard so i've got sunday school lessons all around perfect, me. I just, perfect. it's wonderful yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> so it's so funny our new house we've been in three years now there's a game trail behind our house and oh, cool. between the coyotes and the deer it's a very unpleasant thing especially for cindy when you hear a deer being killed by a pack yeah. of coyotes it's very yes. unsettling at night at mm-hmm. two in the morning but next door to us is a barn and they've got two or three horses and about half a dozen donkeys. And I was like, well, what's the story with the donkeys? Who wants to breed donkeys? And they go, it's the only natural coyote repellent. Yeah, when you have, that interesting? Yeah, you have small horses or yearlings, whatever you call them. Uh, I know nothing about horses. When you have baby horses, uh, they're very susceptible to being uh, taken by coyotes. So, yeah, it's interesting the way God... Oh, is this millions of years of evolution, right? Uh, yeah, happenstance. Just worked happens, out that yeah, way. Just, okay. <laughs> Well, we are glad to have Janet on. I came up with 10 questions based on the last 10 questions that were personal in nature. These are more, help me, Janet, what are we doing? And I mean every word I say. Janet Parcel is one of the the most intelligent people on Christian broadcast and a plethora of information, history, knowledge, theology, all the above. So 
you're going to tutor us today a little bit, Janet. We're going to have some back and forth here, but I came up with these questions, so we're going to jump into them. So first of all, as you look back, and I'm going to say it's probably more like 30 plus years of broadcasting, right? Right, it is. Mm-hmm. One, two, three trends in Western Christianity that most concern you. Wow. I love this question. And let me just preface this by saying everything I say is not you, it's me. And I say that as a collective, uh, because it isn't a matter of sitting like an oracle and pointing my finger down in judgment at the church. I'm part of that body. I'm part of the church. So when I'm doing a personal inventory, this is including me in the conversation, but it's also low these many years in front of a microphone. You really are a cultural observer because talk radio paradoxically is so much more about listening than it is about talking. So there are trends that you witness and see, and then it's evidenced by sort of the caliber of calls that you get that are emblematic of what's really going on in the church. First and foremost, and maybe it's just how I grew up. I'm a good old Bible church kid. And when we grew up, we were missional in our perspective and evangelism was like breathing. It was expected. Everybody did it. Nobody had a special calling for it. When you walked out that door, like so many churches have, there's a sign that says you're now entering your mission field. So evangelizing was absolutely who you were. If you didn't let people know that you were following Jesus and didn't share that good news, the question was, why not? So that's a problem that I see is that there's been this failure to subscribe to the mandate. It's not an opt-in, opt-out clause. We are called to go and tell, but we come up with a plethora of excuses. Bad theology says, well, I don't have that gifting. You know what? He equips the call, doesn't call the equipped. Every one of us, because of the indwelling of the person of the Holy Spirit, already has that imperishable message in us upon receiving what Christ did for us in Calvary. I don't get it. If I were God, I would not work with this kind of an approach. He Hmm. picks cracked, fallen earthen vessels. I would pick bone china. He doesn't do that. He takes us and says, let me pour this precious, irreplaceable, imperishable, I love that word, message into you and I'll go and tell. So we retreat. And I think it's because we've lost our first love. We are more in love with acceptance and inclusion and affirmation from a sin-sick fallen culture than we are about obedience to a holy king. And what happens as a result of that is the second manifestation of that failure to evangelize leads to a lack of cultural engagement. Low these many years, and I've been doing this for decades, we still struggle with this idea of what constitutes cultural engagement. A lot of people hear that word. The first thing they do is they supplant it with politics. Well, let me just back up a little bit and say, I challenge you respectfully. How do you evangelize without cultural engagement? And I go back constantly, and there are a myriad of examples in scripture. But one of the best is Acts 17. So here's Paul. He's walking around Athens. Biblical historians say he was probably there about a year and a half before he gives that presentation in Acts 17. And the saying of the day was, there are more gods in Athens than there are men. He's clearly a brilliant cultural observer. And so he's paying attention to what they're saying. And I have to think also that by the time the Epicureans and the Stoics invited him to come and speak, it's because he had earned some gravitas. He had some heft intellectually, he was worth engaging. They might not buy what he was going to sell, but they also thought this guy's going to have something to say. And whether I agree or disagree, is going to be worth listening to. So he mounts up that rock and he gives that presentation. And, you know, some Bible scholars say it was a bomb. Others of us think that it was a very successful presentation for me as a woman. I'm particularly excited because in the midst was an intellectual by the name of Darius. And I want to know what happened to her when I get to heaven. What happened to your life? Did you follow whom? Did you start a ministry? What was your life like? Did you end up losing your life for the cause of the cross? So there's just so much there. But as he's on top of this hill, making this cultural observance, sees the absence of that unknown God, but the presence of all those other pagan gods, he co-ops language from a pagan poet. 
and mm-hmm. says, in him, we live and move and have our being. He was engaging the culture and evangelizing. So I don't know how you can separate out what scalpel is there to be found that can separate cultural engagement from evangelism. All of the stuff that God has called me to do in Washington in terms of cultural engagement has led me to the opportunity to be able to either live my life with authentic Christianity and show Christ by example, or it has actually led to conversations between breaks on set with Larry King, talking to him about Christ, or people who are known for their liberal ideology. And I'll tell you this in true confession, I was a newbie to Washington and I was invited on PBS to compete in a debate. And I was told that the woman that I was going to debate was particularly angry and that anger was her hallmark and she'd go after you, argument ad hominem, boom going after the person rather than the idea. So I had all my paper points memorized. I'd done my white paper reviews. I was ready to go. I was going to go in and I was going to be rocky, right? I get into the ring and boy, she throws anger. And man, I took the bait right out of the gate. Mm. What a fool. So after it was over, I sobbed all the mm. way home, driving mm. back home. I'm crying to the Lord. I blew it. I besmirched my witness. God, I, she didn't see Jesus. I was not who I was supposed to be. I was more interested in winning the moment than winning her. Oswald Chambers says, we're not called to make men converts of our opinion, but converts of Christ Jesus. I blew that mission. So I said, God, I'm begging. I'm literally begging you, Lord, give me an opportunity to do an engagement of some kind mm. with her again so that I can let her really see Christ in me. <laughs> you have to be careful with a prayer like You're that. Right. <laughs> oh boy, did God open the floodgates. I was with this woman on TV every time I turned around, mm. but I didn't care so much about winning. I really started to pray for her. I said, God, break my heart for her because if she's angry, something's broken yeah, in her. So help me to really hear with the ears on my heart. So we did a debate and we were the last couple out of the green room and I'm slowly packing up and she was packing up and she looked around and saw that it was just the two of us. And she came up to me and she said, hey, Janet. I said, yes. She said, would you do me a favor? I said, absolutely. What can I do for you? She said, will you pray for me? Mm. Now, last thing I thought she'd ever asked me to do. And I said, well, sure. I said, I've been praying to you for a long period of time. She said, well, my life is falling apart Mm -hmm. and I need something. Mm -hmm. So it opened a whole avenue of conversation. And I wasn't the one who did it personally, but another friend in the Lord ended up leading her to faith in Christ six months later. So I realized that the cultural engagement was being called on a set at PBS to debate a cultural issue. But the mission field was this woman sitting on the other side Mm -hmm. of the table in front of a camera. Mm -hmm. So if we're not culturally engaged, how do we evangelize? And then the third manifestation of that falling set of dominoes is if you don't have a love of evangelism, if you don't culturally engage, you retreat from the truth. There's absolutely no way you can be a bold lover and proclaimer of truth if you want cultural acceptance overall, because that precious book says that what we bring is a sword. It will divide the world into two camps when it's all said and done. Those who said yes and those who said no. It's called the offense of the cross. This is not the most popular message. And believe me, the day is coming when every big tech platform out there is going to say yours is the most unacceptable of all messages. So while we still have this opportunity, I want to take captive that technology for the kingdom. But the day will come. When we're told, absolutely not, you cannot. So all of that comes under the canon of me and my first concern. The second concern is we really do take a tepid approach towards scripture. I'm shocked. You and I both know Monticello. You can go down there in the bookshop and you can buy Thomas Jefferson's Bible (laughs) as though he was the author. But what he did was he cut out all of the passages about miracles 
and the messiahship of Christ because he just couldn't rationalize that to his enlightened mind. So he really removed those passages of scripture. I'm not pointing a finger at Tom Jefferson. Aren't we doing the same thing? We look at passages now and we go, ah, you know, that was written for then. That wasn't written for now. Sometime between Malachi and Matthew, God changed his mind. So we now pick and choose and we contextualize for our comfort a 21st century Bible, rather than letting the whole counsel of God be revealed to us through the power of the Holy Spirit and change and transform our lives. It's an old adage. It's an old saw. We've said it over and over and over again that you have to get into the word of God. If you haven't suited up, how do you go out into the battle? If you are reading what's in the world, how do you not square it off with what Dwight Moody called the straight stick of truth? the word of God. So if we don't fall madly in love and hunger for the word on a regular basis, we will, I love this passage in Colossians, we'll be taken captive through vain and hollow philosophies predicated on this world rather than on the word of God. So we're in harm's way when we're not in God's Wait, wait, we'll be taken, we have been taken. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. All over the place. And then I think our third, my last point on this is, and again, maybe it's just my background, but boy, I'll tell you what, we were taught that every night when we went to bed, there were people who were going to hell without Jesus. Mm. That is so un-PC. It is so politically incorrect. It is so anathema to a culture Mm. that it's all about me, a sensate culture that's about the exaltation of self that abhors judgment unless someone else is doing the judging. But if we realize that without Christ, we are eternally separated from him, that means you will be someday in hell If that doesn't make you wet your pillow with tears at night, if it doesn't break your heart, if it doesn't make your feet swift when you get up in the morning, then something's wrong. And I'm a part of all of this. So those are the three that I think concern me the most. It's it's abandoning our first love. It's forgetting his word. It's forgetting to apply it, to be more in love with the culture than in the Savior himself. And then our failure to really weep for those who are lost. You know, it was... uh... Uh, Larry Moyer, who told me years and years ago, people don't share Christ because A, they're afraid, and B, they don't know how. Right. And he said, until you learn how, you'll never overcome the fear. And I've never forgotten that. And I think, you know, you and I live in a communication realm where it's our job to be Christians. It's our job to be religious. And we're supposed to talk about these things. But help the man or woman, Janet, who's in the church, and they're terrified of talking about Christ. Yeah, they probably do cry and worry about their non-Christian friends, but they're terrified to talk about Jesus because of the blowback they might experience, or they don't know the answers, or, or, or. And we've got a lot of excuses, don't we? But I think you just have to do some basics. First of all, you're just the messenger. You know, the work of salvation is done by the Holy Spirit. It's not by you or me. We're given this unbelievably humbling task of going and telling. So take the pressure off of you. You may stumble, you may fall. You and I have heard story after story of people who have had those wonderful moments of engagement. And when it's all Mm -hmm. said and done, the believer walks away going, no, I blew it. That was just awful. And then you hear later that perhaps that person has come to faith in Christ. It's the Holy Spirit doing the work. You in obedience simply show up. You'll Mm -hmm. do it better sometimes than you'll do it other times. Good. And, And so I think it's a matter of saying, I'm going to try it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to make mistakes, but I am going to do it because every single time the Lord can take my sloppy, messy, unprepared work and he can turn it into something perfect. The second thing to it, and it goes back to what we were just talking about, 
So you're going to be rejected. You know, I've aligned myself with a persecuted savior. I have been told that if I'm persecuted for his name's sake, that's actually a blessing. Mm. I'm invited to join him in the fellowship of his suffering, all of those things. So if you were really and truly more interested in winning miscongeniality in the culture than you are about pointing people to the cross, then we have to do some deeper personal inventory and say, so you're rejected. So what? And there are people that will reject us. They rejected Christ. We're an awfully good company. Mm -hmm. But if they choose to reject the message and you don't personalize it, that's okay. Love people enough to be willing to be rejected. Mm -hmm. Rosario Butterfield said it really well to me one time. She goes, to let a person persist in a sexual identity that's wrong is not loving. Yes. It's loving to tell them about Christ and to tell them about the hope of what it means to know him. Let's go on. In 30 plus years of broadcasting, you had one or two guests. I know <laughs> this is a hard question, but can you, you know, two or three that come to mind that you've interviewed and they stand out to you to this day, why? I love this question, and I get asked it a lot because the presumption is, of course, being here in the nation's capital, it'd be somebody who's on the Sunday morning talk shows, right, or the cover of Time magazine. And God has been wonderfully precious. Wait, is to Time me. magazine still published? I'm sorry. Uh, let me check. Yeah. Uh, wait. What's the <laughs> man of the year? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it would be easy to say those are the people that you think, oh, wow, it's really cool to talk to them. And we call them, quote, a guests. OK, that's a word that you use in journalism. So you would think that would be it. And literally, I have talked to presidents, prime ministers and princes. That's absolutely the truth. And you would think, oh, it's going to come from that category. It's not. Let me give you the category. My favorite category of guests are exes. I love to talk to ex-cons, ex-drug addicts, ex-prostitutes, ex-transgenders ex-Klan members. And the reason I do is because every single time I sit alongside someone who's going to tell me the story of what Jesus has done in, for, and through them, A, it reminds me of the precious Savior that I have, number one. It authenticates the validity of the scriptures. It has someone listening who doesn't yet know Christ as their Savior mm. ask the question, if he did that for them, could he do that for me? And number four, it should be a catalyst to go out and tell more people so that there are more exes. Though I'm so thankful that we have something called a mute button where you literally can hit it because my nose is running. I'm crying through half of these conversations mm -hmm. because I'm thinking, only God, only God, only God. We think we find him. He pursues us. And I love the stories of his pursuit of people that might otherwise be cast aside from culture. You know, you're on the ash heap of people we disregard, we devalue, that mm -hmm. you are beyond redemption. And in comes the man of Nazareth who says, but I redeem them. So those are my favorite kinds mm -hmm. of stories. Love it. We are, as no surprise, a very divided country right now. Um, you and I have watched it impact not just the political stage, but the church itself. We hear the comparison about the Civil War today quite a bit. I think when people say that, they, A, don't know church history or Western history <laughs> very mm -hmm. well. But if it's an accurate you know, analogy, what have you seen in this divisive, vitriolic, ghosting, hateful, woke, et cetera, culture? <laughs> and how do we help believers navigate the waters, Janet? Wow. Well, first of all, you start with the good news. The good news is that God is sovereign. And I love to say this frequently on the air, that he could have placed us in the 1700s when we were deciding whether or not we should rebel against Mother England. He could have put us in the 1800s when sin was separating this country stem from stern, north from south. But instead, he chose to put us in the 21st century where good is called evil, evil is called good, and there's no question that man is doing what is right in his own eyes. For me, that's exciting. I praise God for that because what an opportunity to say, whoa, 
here's the darkness and look at the distinction that the light provides. So A, we start with the excitement that we are here on purpose for such a time as this. Mordecai didn't just say that to Esther. He's saying it to us. You are here by divine design at this time when it's mayhem in the culture at large. But I think one of the biggest reasons we could point to for why we're seeing such an acceleration in this decay is because if you watch the power of language as an example of the decay that's taking place, Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year 2016, post-truth. That means we're beyond postmodern. We're beyond post-Christian. We are now into post-truth, which means if you look up the, and it's fascinating, if you read the definition in the Oxford Dictionary, it talks about your feelings superseding absolute knowable truth. So in other words, when we used to share the gospel, someone would say in response, ah, that's the truth that I've been looking for. And then you'd introduce him to the one whose name is truth. And it was much more straightforward and much more linear in our sharing the gospel. That's not the way now, because in fact, they like to talk about it in the world of psychology is the affective superseding the cognitive. So the affective is how you feel about it. And where that gets really dicey for us is that now, and I'll take as an example, because clearly the whole idea of the LGBTQ revolt in this country is probably the biggest challenge the church is facing right now. Record reflecting that we didn't pick that fight, but that fight has come to our front door mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on both a policy and a personal level. Policy, we have to figure out how we react as the church. People level, we have to figure out how we minister to broken people. But I have to tell you that in that milieu of that particular controversy, now you've got, but it's my son. It's my brother. Mm -hmm. It's my Mm -hmm. cousin. And you personalize the problem so that your affective, your feelings supersede the truth that God says, yes, but here's what God's word has said. So we have not yet cracked, lo, these many years, that directive we read that says we are to speak truth in love, not a multiple choice test, not an either or, (laughs) equal measure. And sometimes we will fall flat on our face when we do this, but then we pick ourselves up and we do it again. But a God who tells fathers, don't frustrate your children, is the same God who wouldn't give us a directive then say, just kidding, you can't do it. So if God tells us to speak the truth in love, there is a way to be able to do it. You hinted at this a moment ago, Michael, when you talked about the fact that when we talk about sharing the good news with someone who struggles with same-sex attraction, what we're hearing in a post-truth world is, oh, what difference does it make who somebody loves? No, they're not hurting you, just love them. And you know what? I am so thankful. And I go back to that wonderful woman caught in the act of adultery. What a story. So, and when Mel Gibson did this scene, it was so powerful. Mm -hmm. So there he is writing in the sand. Jesus doesn't tell us what he's writing in the sand. One of my 1 million questions when I get to sit at his feet, what were you writing? That will be answered in the first nanosecond when you write. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) Oh, Oh, duh. Next question. (laughs) (laughs) But we got an eternity because there's a lot of questions. There you go. There you go. So what happens is after they throw down their rocks and they walk away and he turns and looks at her and says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, I know not, Lord. And he said, neither do I accuse you. And he could have ended the conversation, but he didn't. He loved her by letting her know that she was welcomed in, that he loved her with all of her blemishes, all of her flaws, all of her brokenness, Mm -hmm. all of her immorality, and then says, in truth, now go and sin no more. more. Do you know that we had a conference in Washington, D.C. a few years back? It was about, actually, the agenda of the conference was try to, in particular, penetrate African-American churches and get them to embrace homosexuality and abortion. And a pastor in this conference stood up and said, I believe Jesus would give someone a condom. And I go right back to the scriptures and say, take a look at that story with the woman. He didn't say, neither do I accuse you. Here, 
Here you go. Here's, Here's contraceptive. Condom, yeah, right. Exactly right. So the fact is, there's the example of speaking the truth in love. The truth sets us free, and it's the most wow. loving thing that we can do. And if we don't speak truth in love, I love you to the transgender person. You know, there's no question that there's brokenness here. When you have to change your identity to try to discover who you are rather than discover whose you are and therefore learn what your identity is, there is brokenness there. Now, can I minister to that person while at the same time saying, no, I am opposing the Equality Act. Mm -hmm. Yes, Christians mm -hmm. can walk and chew gum at the same time. And boy, this is, I'm going to get on my soapbox on this. We have to really understand that God calls us to be critical thinkers. Michael, when I came to Christ, my heart was transformed, but the Bible said my mind was renewed. Why do we think that it's an either or proposition? It's why the Washington Post said you're poor, uneducated, and easy to command. Mm -hmm. We give them material. Mm -hmm. We let them think that it's either <laughs> faith or reason, that the two are mutually yeah. exclusive. So when we fail to study to show ourselves approved unto God, doing our homework, then I think what happens is we get sloppy in our application of God's truth. God's big on prep. Moses took care of sheep for 40 years before he led people. Paul's in Arabia for three years. Jesus has got his ministry of prep for over 30 years before he starts. And yet we're looking for instant results. One swipe of an iPhone, one tweak of a bit of information, one quick perusal of a site on our computer, and that's it. And I can't tell you how I think that's in opposition to what God wants. You have to study. And that means self-discipline, self-control, and self-denial. And I don't know. Well, in a post-truth world. You're jumping ahead to a question I have for you. So hold that thought. But I pulled up the post-truth definition just to be sure I got it right. Relating to a situation in which people are more likely to accept an argument based on their emotions and beliefs rather than one based on facts. How did this happen, Janet? Exactly. Well, obviously, there's a myriad of cultural things that have colluded at exactly the same time. Secular humanism, by the way, the whole God is dead idea. I mean, ultimately, truth is God, right? Knowable, accessible to every single one of us. So if you decide that truth is no longer universal, applies to all people in all times and all places, but is of your own construction, oh, newsflash, that's an ancient idea. Genesis 3, you shall be like gods. So it's an old idea where we're constantly challenging the concept of truth and we become our own little gods and make up our own truth. And then we cover up that arrogance, that hubris by saying, but aren't I a loving person in doing that? So it's been slow one step at a time. But again, I go back to the church, this separate and distinct lighthouse. If you're being taken captive by vain and hollow philosophies, it's because you have abandoned your love of the truth. Thy word is truth. John 17, love the fact, God didn't have to do this, but this wonderful author and editor-in-chief gives us permission to stand in quiet observation as Jesus is talking to his Abba Father in John 17. He's going to the cross. He is about to suffer the most horrific form of capital punishment known to man to this day. And Jesus is praying for us. Mm -hmm. If that doesn't put a lump in your throat, then I don't know what you're reading. But God prays at that time, don't take them out of mm -hmm. the world, but sanctify them with thy and word. Truth. Thy word and is truth. truth. Mm -hmm. I'm back to this post-truth thing. And I remember Dobson years ago speaking at one of those uh, briefings when we lived up in Northern Virginia, and mm -hmm. he was going after emotions. And he said, you know, I wrote a book called Emotions. Can you trust them? And I spent 100 and whatever it was, 56 pages saying, no. <laughs> 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 and, and, you know, something happened in the last, you know, decade, is that generous, where how I feel about something is much more important than a fact. 
And I have this saying that when I talk to couples or individuals who are struggling, look, you can't fact away a feeling. Just because you feel a certain way, it's a reality, but doesn't mean you're going to stay there because six weeks from now, you probably won't feel this way. Exactly. But boy, have we turned the app card upside down. Okay, look, social media, number four, has quick, short, and you alluded to this, quick, short headlines with little substance. And that communication is truncated people's thinking. That's my thesis. Whether they get it from Twitter, Instagram, a header on a Facebook post, whatever, it seems people are not thinking carefully, but reacting knee-jerk. Is that a fair observation? What have you noticed? And again, how do we help people think beyond just snippets? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, let me affirm your thesis because I think you're spot on. And again, I say that I think it's primarily, and let me talk about the church versus the world. I think the same problem is there for the world as well, but for the church in particular, who really should know better. I think what happens is that there's a strand of laziness in this. I don't want to have to read that paper. I don't want to have to do my homework, Mm. but I really think that the time has come where we need to be Bereans. We really and truly have to test all things. I think that mandate for discernment is now necessary more than ever. And isn't it wonderful to know that because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Mm -hmm. we have it. If we're paying attention to his leading, we absolutely have it. But there's a kind of instant news. We are a sensate culture. I can get instant popcorn and instant divorce and money instantly out of an ATM. So instantly, I expect to know something. Knowledge, we're supposed to seek knowledge. We're supposed to get wisdom. That's going to take some sweat equity. You're going to have to roll your sleeves up and you're going to have to do some homework. And so the problem with snippets is that they become just that. It isn't the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But let me tell you what the problem is, and I will drop this contextually in the full culture. 84% of today's working journalists, 84% get their news from Twitter. Oops. That's terrifying. That's terrifying. Journalists, exactly. If the journalists are getting their news from Twitter. Wait, wait, wait. Don't call them journalists. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever they are. They're information (laughs) aggregates. They aren't journalists. That's exactly. They're opinion makers, more to the point. Gosh. If that's where they're getting their facts, and then you move toward what we're seeing now, which is the censoring of ideas that are not popular, you can imagine how a message is being shaped That is not only antithetical to the truth, but it's totalitarianism. It's soft totalitarianism. We're going to hold back information. You won't get it. We're going to tell you what to think. We've seen this in every totalitarian regime that's ever been. We control the flow of information. Therefore, we can control the people. But but we haven't seen this in America in the last few years. Yep. And yep. now it's like, okay, we're going down a roller coaster with, you know, 300 pound weight strap on our back. It doesn't seem like there's a way out. Well, I have to tell you, again, such a good observation on your part. You know, if you look at the steps of totalitarianism, we are really at step 10. And when that step 10 comes, it comes fast, which is really the sequestering, the holding of information. This, the former Soviet Union had this. It was called Pravda. They literally controlled the information that people would get. China doesn't have an internet. It has an intranet. Right. And it controls all of the information that the people in China can get. We are there now. I find it paradoxical being a kid that grew up in the 60s where there were protests against Vietnam and we saw students who were letting their voices be heard. I was at the University of Wisconsin in the middle of a lecture and in came a group of protesters and they flipped the chairs and they started screaming and we had to get out of the classroom and they started tear gassing the room and it was all for free speech so that they could speak what they felt about <laughs> Vietnam, which was paradoxical. But you know, there was something else that I saw during that stage that I think is applicable to where we are now. Craig was doing some witnessing on a street corner in Madison with navigators and a bunch of these protesters surrounded a police car banging on the car with their fists, screaming at the top of their lungs, love, 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 love. 
You can't make it up. No, but what a picture of misunderstanding love, which is exactly what I think we're seeing in the 21st century. But the radicals of their day screamed protection of free speech. The radicals of our day are screaming, sit down, be quiet. You're a hater and you're espousing hate speech. So the flip here cannot be missed, but it's also a cautionary tale. Yes. They alternative media, this podcast, the alternative media, the work that God has called me to do, the alternative media, as long as we can, we have to take captive this technology for the kingdom because pretty soon the day will come and they'll go, I'm sorry, you're a hater. We're not allowed to let you say that anymore. Goodbye. And they'll close us out. So while the sun is still up, we need to take captive the day. I can barely go on. (laughs) 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 Okay. Is it fair? that say that the so-called legacy or mainstream media has become liberal. When you and I were younger, we had three broadcast channels, ABC, CBS, NBC, and maybe some UHF channels with a little foil on the antenna. Now (laughs) we've got innumerable ways to get information and we see immeasurable bad information. Exactly. What do we do? Well, first of all, I believe that when you're encountering an idea that's bad, you don't silence it. You defeat it with a better idea. So I am subscribing to the idea that I want an all-comers policy and more platforms, not less platforms. So my attitude is good. Make that marketplace just as busy as you can be. Come on in and recognize that there are going to be ideas that you disagree with. But as Nat Hentoff, writing for The Village Voice, said, free speech for me, but not for thee. So I have to be able to recognize that in the marketplace of ideas, Americans United for separation of church and state is going to espouse their worldview as much as I disagree with it 100%, but their ability to proclaim what they believe opens the door of protection for me to proclaim what I believe. The minute you start picking and choosing who will be silent, then you're going to have a problem because we will lose in that because Mm -hmm. we have the most offensive message of all. The other thing is it isn't just a matter of saying, hey, they become liberal. A long time ago, there was a very famous study done of reporters in the newsroom by Lichter and Roth, and they put out the statistics and they said they found at that time, this is about 20 years ago, at that time, so you can imagine how much more, 90% of the people who worked in the newsroom were pro-abortion and were pro-gay rights. So that's the grid, the worldview. This is why Chuck Colson was so spot on Mm. talking about understanding what it means to have a Christian worldview. So if that's their worldview, every story they write gets pushed through that grid. So for example, you're never called pro-life in a major newspaper, you're called Mm anti-abortion. It's manipulation of language done on purpose, for example. So by the way, I think of late, the words Christian nationalism, that's a pejorative. I don't know any Christian in the world who subscribe to that idea, but But it's a pejorative to silence us now. Oh, and and it's working. Oh, hundred percent. And it's not only is it working, there are people who are picking up and carrying water for the people who really wish to do us harm. In fact, if I can linger, I love the way the word evangelical now has utterly no meaning. I don't even know what to call myself anymore other than a Christ follower. Before we were a fighting fundamentalist and they'd club <laughs> us to death with that, which by the way, the word means returning to the root. So yes, I'm a happy fundamentalist. Thank you very much. And then if you go to the idea that evangelical means what? So there was a letter that got put out by quote, several evangelical leaders recently, and they were crying Christian nationalism. So I sent out a tweet that someone had sent me on this. And I said, why don't you define what it means to be an evangelical leader? And of course, you read the letter and it's every card carrying member of the so-called religious left, which is a euphemism used by the press, which basically means in common parlance, 
you don't believe a scintilla of what's in scripture. You don't believe in the authority of scripture. You don't believe in the authenticity of scripture, yet you masquerade using the word evangelical. I don't know what you're evangelizing about if you don't believe in the inerrancy of God's word. But the bottom line is when you realize that the word evangelical is even being used to silence us now, we don't know what to call ourselves. We're afraid to identify as followers of Christ. We're afraid to have our message out there. We're afraid that we're going to be marginalized by the culture. So there's a rapid, swift change in language. And I think we need to be very aware. Test all things. Go back to that Berean posture again. When you hear the word, don't swallow it hook, line, and sinker, just like we read the Bible. What does it mean contextually? How is the author using it? Why did the Atlantic Magazine and the New York Times vivisect Christians and so saying that every single person was responsible on the January 6th attack at the Capitol building was responsible for Mm -hmm. by the results of Christians. I'm pulling up the New York Times paper right here. This is the headline. The religious rights hostility to science is crippling our coronavirus response. Now, I have to read that laughing because I get it. I follow Jesus, therefore the coronavirus spread. Oh, okay, I get it. I get it. But it's a pejorative saying because we're poor, ignorant, and uneducated, we must be anti-science. Therefore, because we're anti-science, we're spreading the coronavirus. Now, I would ask my brothers and sisters, you picked up the New York Times, you read that headline. How do you respond? How do you discern? How do you break that down? How do you see the manipulation? How do you see the fact that just like Michael said before, it isn't a matter of conservative to liberal. There's no objective fact reporting in the press anymore. It is all opinion. Opinion stays on the editorial page. Facts are on the front page of the paper above the fold. We are beyond that now. It is all about the 24-7 absolutely insatiable media monster that has to be fed constantly. And so get your opinion out there. And sadly, the adage in journalism that says, if it bleeds, it leads is the hallmark Mm -hmm, of the day. mm -hmm. So get there first, tell the ugliest story, vivisect another human being as quickly as you can, and boom, your ratings will go up. If we're not using discernment with that renewed and transformed mind that we've got, we're going to be taken captive. So buyer beware. You know, it's striking too, how you see these montages once in a while where a media outlet will look at, let's say, you know, horizontal and vertical programming and how they use the exact same phrase. Yes. And we talk about talking points, but boy, talk about a script. It's like they're not even pretending. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> but least. it lies. There's no intellectual power here. You're all just off the same song sheet. Somebody, open I want original thoughts. Open a thesaurus for God's sake. <laughs> Get a little variety in your language, you know. It's like when you watch election results. He's handily beating so-and-so. Handily. The only time I hear handily is during elections. Oh, the language. Okay, let's go on here. In the last election. Wasn't that long ago, we saw Christians on both sides apoplectic, pro-Trump, never-Trumpers, people that voted for Biden for a number of reasons, Uh, such a hot topic. You get backlash, and of course, you live in this market space. Mm -hmm. I don't, but I I have seminary friends, Janet, guys I went to seminary with, same degree, pastors who were pro-Biden all the way, and I asked the, the benign question. I said, is policy more important than personality? Is policy and law more important than a person's, you know, checkered past, for example? And the answers, of course, were opinion generated, not fact generated. But it leads me to this place in my own soul, and this is where I truly want to grow. I don't know what to do. Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends that you be at peace with all men. So hmm. am I wrong to say <laughs> impossible? Here, we're going to have to be the church of if possible. The rest of them are crazy. Um, again, what do we do here? Because you know you live in this exchange far more quickly than me, but I don't know what to say anymore. Because mm. no matter what you say, 
as the average Christian out there in the marketplace, you got a job, you, people know you're a believer, husband, wife, working outside the home, working at whatever you're doing. You say you're pro-Trump, pro-Biden, pro-whatever, you're going to be vilified, excoriated, yeah. burned. Yep. Well, you could go into the entire psychology of marginalization of 75 million voters. The press is doing that very well. Thank you very much. And unfortunately, we have some in the church who have bought that hook, line, and sinker. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. it's sloppy thinking. It indicates a lack of intellectual prowess. You've painted with a broad brush. You've said everybody who supported the president stormed the Capitol. You know, there were over there were hundreds of thousands of people at the rallies on January 6th. About 200 went to the Capitol. So just right out of the gate, sheer objective fact says that wasn't the majority of the people who were there. We now know that there was, for example, people from Antifa who were there paid right. by the networks, $35,000 for showing up, getting videotaped. I mean, that yucky stuff aside, let me go to the verse that you just quoted. I say this verse constantly. And here's my comfort. Paul recognized that it's not always going to happen. Right. That's why he said, if possible, what he meant, and this is a guy who knew controversy. Oh my word, you read yeah, his letters to the yeah. church. He was going to controversy. <laughs> he left controversy. He was solving controversy. So what the standard was, come on. On, guys, let's try to be able to be at peace with each other. We are the body, but I understand there are going to be times when there's not. So the way I delineate that out is I go back to our mutual friend, Dr. Norman Geisler, who wrote a fabulous mm. book about teaching us to discern the difference between the majors and the minors. There are some hills on which to die. That would be absolute Christian orthodoxy, non-negotiable, not up for debate. I got to tell you, the problem we're at right now is step number one. We got churches right now. You got one in your backyard that says, you know, the Bible was just written by a bunch of men. You know, we're a loving church. We're an evangelical loving church. But, you know, the Bible's filled with mistakes and it's just human musings. Well, okay, that's a major. That's not a minor. There I will dispute. That is not a useless argument. So you decide what's a major versus a minor. When we stand before the king, the king is not going to ask us who'd you vote for. Okay. I can guarantee you that is not going to happen. But we will be having those conversations because we're immersed in a culture of Rome, Athens, Babylon, take your choice, where these conversations are out in the marketplace of ideas. So how do you listen, but how do you learn to disagree agreeably? And here again is the challenge for the critical thinker. Paul tells us not to engage in useless arguments. Mm -hmm. Some arguments are absolutely useless and we make them hills to die on when in fact they're anything but. So that's where grace has to be given because I'm not gonna engage in a useless argument. But if somebody were to ask me sincerely, why did you vote for candidate A instead of candidate B? I want to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that resides within me, not just the hope of my salvation, but the hope in knowing that I'm obedient to the Lord when I render unto Caesar in a voting booth who I'm supposed to vote for. I want to be prayed up. I want to be read up. I want to know exactly where the candidate stands. I'm looking at policy. I've lived in this town as you have, Michael, for so many years that, you know, wait a couple of years and the chairs change. It's musical chairs yeah, all the time. Yeah. The well, let me, let me, let me interrupt for just a second. What you just said, though, I fear from living around the country, people do not differentiate between policy and personnel. That's my Agreed. point. Is they don't understand the staff writers that work for these elected officials, they're changing the cultural context for your children and grandchildren. And it doesn't matter who the man or woman who's up front, you know, and shaking hands and having, you know, pancake breakfast. What matters is what is that woman or man, what are they going to sign? What piece of paper? Exactly. And they don't understand this, Janet. This is my, mm -hmm. and I don't want to sound like, you know, I'm right and they're wrong. I just fear that America has no clue, back to the snippets and the opinion, they have no clue. I mean, I remember years ago when I was at Emanuel, I asked Bob McEwen to come and talk to our kids at the Christian school about how a bill is made. And I sat on the back row where you and Craig sat. I sat in the back <laughs> row and I watched him with a 
white marker board explained the three branches of government and a bill to elementary school kids, and I sat there going, 98% of Americans could not do what this man just did with the simple process of how a bill is made, how it becomes law, the three branches of government. So fast forward, we're in a personality contest, we're in a party, we're in platforms, and we don't know, as Christians, I'm not talking about the country, as Christians, we don't know what we don't know. No. Well, let me build on what you said, because it's such a wonderful, again, observation on your part. And let me go to the idea of personality versus policy. Before the first election with Donald Trump, I was asked to participate in an event at the National Press Club. And I did my homework before I went there. And I went through all of the past presidents of the United States to see what their personal lives were like. And it was stunning. We had a president who birthed a child out of wedlock mm -hmm. while he was in the Oval Office. We had alcoholics. We had presidents who had mistresses who would come to the White House on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. John Adams is my favorite, favorite, favorite founding father. Sure. I loved his thinking. I loved his relationship with Abigail. I adore the love letters between the two of them. He had a very straightforward personality. He was known for being very forthright with his personality. And as a result of that, a lot of people didn't like John Adams because of his personality. So if you vote personality, that is absolutely the most shallowest of thinking that you could possibly do. The president's office by constitutional restraint cannot be occupied by more than eight years. No president. So it's going to change eventually. But the legacy of policy and the judges you put on the court and what you do in terms of our relationship with countries internationally has a long shadow. It goes mm -hmm. beyond mm -hmm. the office of the presidency of the United States. So if we don't even understand how a bill becomes a law, we fail to recognize the temporal nature of the people who are elected, but the long lasting policy. You know, I could get on a soapbox and just talk about the last couple of weeks and the things that we've seen change. Personality aside, I'm just looking at policy. Do you fund Planned Parenthood so that there are more children being aborted or do you not? Do you fight for religious liberty or do you retreat? Do you retain the definition of a traditional family as man and woman as God himself defined it? Or do you radically redefine it in any way you want to? Notice I didn't mention a single personality. That's policy. That will have a lasting impact on you, your children, and your grandchildren. So if we could encourage our brothers and sisters, and this isn't, this is not, our salvation doesn't come by way of Washington. Let me offer that caveat. Right, right. But this is being in the city of man, Augustine, right? Yeah. He writes the city Amen. of man, the city of God. This is my temporal residency in this temporary world known as earth. And while I'm here, rendering unto Caesar is about a whole lot more than paying taxes. It's about helping to uphold a standard of righteousness. Because when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. And when the wicked rule, the people groan. And I'm supposed to seek the welfare of the city. Thank you, Jeremiah, he says to Jews in a captive pagan town. So all of that applies to trying to say in this temporal world, Lord, what can I do to seek the welfare of the city? I can vote for people who will put policy in place that will uphold and protect the standards and principles and precepts of your word. It's not rocket science. It's just following through. If, as Paul said, I'm back to Acts in the Areopagus, if in him we do, in fact, live and move and have our, our being. being, then even my voting is reflective of who I am in Jesus Christ. And I'm not looking at personalities. I'm looking at the policy because the policies of God's word are what drive my life. I often compare our, when I have groups in Israel, I remind them Israel was occupied by Rome. And when Herod the Great built all these things, he was allowing the Jew and the Christian to carry out what we might call freedom of religion to a degree. Mm -hmm. That's right. And when the Visigoths came over the hill, metaphorically, and dismantled the Roman Empire, 
which I don't think anyone saw coming. I mean, Nero certainly had become a megalomaniac, but as it winds down, you saw how quickly that occurred. And my fear is this 200 and, is it 44 years this year? Yes. Uh, Experiment is winding down so fast, we don't even see it. No. The Visigoths are coming over the hill, Janet. Oh, boy. You made me think of a book. I just talked to Cal Thomas recently. He wrote an absolutely fabulous book that talks about the dissolution of culture. And he studied 10 cultures that had risen and fallen, the Roman culture being one of them. And he pointed out that there are absolute replicated hallmarks in every one of the dissolutions of these cultures. And one of them is that they last about 250 years. You just talked about us being 244 years old. It's the exaltation of self. It is uh, sexual deviancy. I mean, these were in every single one of these cultures that were and are no more. But, you know, going back to Rome, and I loved your analysis on this, you realize that while there was a kind of certain religious liberty, like we enjoy here in the United States, who are the bad guys? Nero takes Christians, he lashes them to a pole, he covers them with pitch, he sets them on fire, fire. he drives naked through the streets of Rome, and he says the Christians started the fire. Mm -hmm. So the fact that the Christians were to blame, the Christians were to marginalize, hey, wake up, friend, nothing new under the sun. Who's the fault? We Christians drove them to the Capitol on January 6th. We Christians are the ones who are slowing down, helping the COVID virus. We Christians fill in the blank. Where do you think this is going? So now you've got two choices. You're going to go to bed. You're going to pull the covers over your head and you're going to shake and quake until God calls you home. Or you're going to say, okay, God, I can't do much, but I can tell you this with you, I can do anything. I'm going to subscribe to the minority spy report. There are not giants in the land and I am not just a grasshopper. You are a great and a mighty God. And the worst that can happen, the very worst that can happen is I lose my life. That's the worst that can happen. Oh, really? Well, Paul's got something to say about that. He said to live is Christ, to die is gain. So that's the worst that can happen? Okay, I got news for you. This is not as good as it gets. The best is yet to come. I'm out of here. Paul said, if it weren't for your sake, I'd rather be out of here. He was absolutely right. And he'd been to the third heaven. Think what he knows that we don't know. Mm. So the bottom line is, is yep, it is going to get tough. And you're not going to be loved by the culture. And you're not going to be accepted by everybody. And you are going to be called a hater. And you're going to be tested. Everything you've ever believed about this word is going to be hammered into the ground. And you're going to be asked whether you believe it or you don't. And then let the consequences fall where they may. I look to my brothers and sisters around the globe who are suffering daily for the cause of the cross. If they can do it through the power of the Holy Spirit, so can we. So what are we afraid of? You know, pulling the covers up over my head sounds kind of appealing sometimes. (laughs) 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 I had a friend the other day text me just one word with a question mark, Belize. (laughs) That's great. Uh, Oh, gosh. All right, let's talk about a real dicey issue, the racial challenge in America. Mm -hmm. African-Americans and white Americans right now seem to just be at such odds. And you do have some, you know, sober voices here and there. But, you know, you're going to draw back a nub if you or I say anything about the African-American culture. I mean, it's always been that way, right, for Mm -hmm. the white individual. But, again, just some observations on what's happening and what you're seeing. Well, I have to tell you, I'm as dark as this moment is, it's really giving us a fabulous opportunity to Mm. shine the light of disinfectant on a dark, pernicious sin. (laughs) Going back to, you know, the writer of Ecclesiastes, one smart guy, racism is not new. Racism is as old as the word is. You understand that the Egyptians hated the Jews. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he hated what the Ninevites did to his people. The Samaritans and the Jews, you know, on that day, the prayer of a rabbi would be, thank you, God, you didn't make me a woman, a dog, or a Samaritan. Okay, so obviously that's racism. Okay, let me interrupt. 
Okay. Racial versus nationalism. I mean, I'm going to push back on you here because racism seems to be precisely white versus black. We're, we're talking different nationalities, different people groups. Well, that's are you saying? Go ahead. I'm glad you brought that up because I don't think that's a distinction with the difference. And I'm okay. going to tell you why. Because racism at its core is pride. One people group is more important than another people group. I don't care if it's your skin okay. or it's your ethnicity. It's the sin of pride that says, I'm better than you. I have more value than you. I'm greater than you. It is an absolute abdication of the idea of Imago Dei. You were made in the image mm -hmm. of God. Doth right. thou see the spirit of God in that man? Say to yourself someday, that man and I shall walk together. That's John Bunyan. He said that. So when we abandon the idea that we fail to see the image of God in our fellow man, whether it's their ethnicity or whether it's their skin color, their race, and our friend, Dr. Alveda King says, there's only one race. It's the human race. That's what mm -hmm. we read in the scripture. Right. So we could parse out whether the word racism is even right. But when you look at this arrogance that says, I'm better than you because, fill in the blank, either my ethnicity or my race, it is a sin. And I think that the church needs to be talking about racism as a sin with the same tenacity as we talk about the sin of abortion and the sin of homosexuality. So I think we need to showcase that like never before. Where did we as the body of believers act like the Jews of old who won't have anything to do with the Samaritans? The arrogance of that to say that somehow you're less than I am and that we've put into practices those kinds of laws that at one point endorse that are unconscionable to me. The second is it's time for the Christian to really get an empathetic heart. I weep every time I read and Jesus had compassion on them. I don't know what it's like to be told I can't sit at a counter. I don't know what it's like to say I can't use that bubbler. I don't know what it's like to not be able to swim in your public pool. I don't know what it's like. And Tim Scott told me this on the air. His grandfather walking down a sidewalk in South Carolina had to step off the sidewalk so a white man could pass. I'm going to tell you plainly, I would be a very angry black woman. Mm -hmm. And I said to Tim, I said, how do you deal with that anger? With that kind of constant injustice, you can't change your skin. A sovereign God chose to bring you into this world with pigmentation that's darker than mine. But that constant, the atrocities meted out simply because of skin color would make me very angry. He said, Janet, you know, that's the biggest thing we have to deal with in the church. Mm. In the black church, we have to say, listen, how do you turn that anger into forgiveness? How do you turn that rage into that peaceful idea? That idea that says as much as possible for you, be at peace with all men. Paul didn't delineate out that's for whites, not for blacks. That's for every follower of Christ. So how do you take that rage, that anger, that injustice and turn it productively? But I also think we quote the white, and I'm nauseated by using that descriptor, the white church do we know what that's like? You know, people will say, I never owned slaves. I don't have to apologize. You don't have to have owned slaves. My mother and father are first generation Americans. My grandparents all came over from Europe. So there were no slaveholders in my family. Right, they were right. the ones who were held as indentured servants in right. Europe, quite frankly. But I don't have to have had that experience. I just have to feel their pain. Empathy means, boy, I grieve with you. I weep with you. That must have been horrible. My heart breaks for you. I am so sorry. But then on top of that, this is where the critical thinking comes in. And I've had to think about this and say it over the air and gulped and prayed up before I said it. I can say definitively, Black lives matter. That's biblical because all lives matter. Out of the hierarchy of God's creation, man is the only part of creation made in his image. God becomes man, not goat, not sheep, not fish, man, and dwells among us. There's something 
primary about this condition known as the human condition that reflects the sovereignty of God. There is, contrary to my Peter friends, a hierarchy in creation, and man is the pinnacle of that. So when you realize that that is the representative of the image of God, you understand that we can say Black Lives Matter definitively. Mm. But I can walk and chew gum at the same time. But the organization Black Lives Matter is markedly Marxist. It is antithetical to the word of God. And I do not and will never support Black Lives Matter as an organization. Now, that's tough. And that can't be done in a soundbite. And you got to flesh that out. But if you say it with clarity, you help people to understand I'm about people. I'm not about this organization. I'm not about supporting their Marxist idea before they took it down, because once people started talking about it, oh, they had to change. Now they were under the microscope of cultural scrutiny. They point blank said, we believe in the dissolution of the traditional family and we support gay and lesbian rights. What? What? What does that have to do with Black Lives Matter? So that's because it's all part of a Marxist agenda. It makes perfect sense that way. So we have to be able to take this moment feel the pain of our brothers and sisters, really expose the sin of racism, talk about it with the same gusto as we do other sins that are out in our culture, but also draw a distinctive between those, quite frankly, that are marketing that sin into a profitable corporation so, in America. So when you go to critical race theory, uh-huh. bridge too far. Well, let me tell you, again, you study to show thyself approved unto God. If you study critical race theory, you understand it started with something called critical theory. It then evolved to something called critical legal theory. It then grew into something called critical race theory. It is quintessential Marxism. It is the subjugation of the individual to the collective. And it means that you have to create a victim. And it is the lens through which you push everything. So for the critical race theory, the lens is black. Everything is viewed as black. Your math problems are viewed as black. Your history is told from a black perspective. Everything you do is told through a single lens because in so doing, you can create a victim and oppressor mentality. When you see people that put 30 seconds up on TikTok and they'll say, you're a racist because you're white. First of all, 30 seconds doesn't let you flesh that out. So you're not being able to think critically on that. But second of all, you've created a victim and an oppressor. I am the oppressor because God in his sovereignty chose to make me white. Why? Because you said so? What was the evidence to that end? I'm not guilty for being who God made me any more than I'm guilty of being born a woman than I'm being born a man. How critical race theory is even up for debate within the church capital C universal is absolutely stunning to me. Mm. It could not be farther apart than what the word of God thinks. And my heart goes out to some brothers and sisters who I think are doing this because they think it's a way of repairing the breach of entering into a ministry of reconciliation, all those wonderful, marvelous, difficult things that scripture calls us to do. But I'm telling you, the bridge is not made up of critical race theory. That's anathema. Get rid of that. Start looking at your fellow man in the image of God. And I'm telling you, it changes everything. It changes your perspective on race. It changes your perspective on abortion. It changes your perspective on a myriad of issues when you begin to see the fingerprints of God in the life of another human being made like you in the image of God. So from Race theory and race challenge, LGBTQAI plus, on and on it goes. It's made an incredible strides. You and I know a man who was a writer back in your CWA years, and mm -hmm. I mean he was sort of the pioneer trying to write about ACT and was it ACT up and different things. And boy, the guy was just vilified and threatened, and you know all that he was afraid of has come true. And uh, so now we're living in this, again, it didn't happen overnight, but it feels like it did. And all of a sudden, and you mentioned it earlier, 
most of us have a family member, a close friend, uh, maybe a man or woman has an ex now who has decided he or she is, you know, some other identifier. Thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember 1993, I was flying back to Washington after giving a speech and I looked down and there was a march going right down Constitution. We have a town filled with marches on a regular basis. This was a gay rights march and they were handing out leaflets and I got one of the leaflets and they enumerated every single goal they wanted. And do you know, to this day, they've gotten every single yep. goal. Yep. They knew it would take a long time, but they wanted every they single goal. They didn't nope. stop fighting. Nope. They stayed the course and they pressed on. And then they juxtaposed the idea of race and sexual orientation as though they were somehow commingled. And I remember hearing a man say once that the freedom train to Selma was hijacked on the way to Sodom. And he was a black Whoa. man. And I thought, oh, is that good? And he got angry. He said, how dare you take my unchangeable, immutable huh. characteristic of skin color and say it's the same thing as your sexual orientation. But they've done it. They've done it successfully. They won that argument in the court of public opinion because we were not thinking critically. And we went, oh, yeah, it must be the same thing, right? And then we put a heavy layer of sentimentality over it. Hey, what difference does it make who I love? And the next thing you know, we've got people who are going down a path of destruction. There is a way that seems right on demand and the end they're in is death. So one of the things you asked me earlier about my favorite guests, the ex, the person who's come mm -hmm. out of that lifestyle to the person I have heard, if someone hadn't told me the truth, I'd still be in the lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And yet we think, oh, just love them. Just love them. Yes. It's not an either or proposition. Absolutely. I can love you enough to say don't do that. God has a better plan for you. God creates sex. My mom used to say when I was a kid growing up, you know, God is a sexy God. And I waited for the storm to come and my mother to be turned into a pile of ash because I thought you can't say that. And what she was trying to teach me was sex was God's idea. And, you know, as a kid growing up, trying to struggle with whether or not I was going to be chased until I was married, right. really great thing for me to hear from my mama. So I'm glad <laughs> she told me that. But I have to tell you, so God makes sex. He puts it in this place called a marriage. He then takes away the ambiguity and says, oh, no, by the way, marriage is one man and one woman. Now, I'm going to put this ring of protection around your life because I love you, little sheep. And right outside that ring, there are a bunch of wolves. And when you get outside there, you could be gobbled up by the wolves. So do it my way. And I promise you abundance. In fact, I'm going to tell you what the marriage bed is undefiled. Rejoice in the bride of your youth. I'm going to write a whole book called The Song of Songs. That's all going to get you to understand how much I love this. I mean, God is a sex God. By that, I mean, he created an institute yeah. to find it and said, enjoy it. And then the devil comes along and goes, really? Did God say that? Well, watch this. I'm going to let you do whatever you think is right in your own eyes, because after all, you're God. So broken, hurting people listen to the Pied Piper of destruction who leads them down a path of destruction. So the most loving thing you can do is say to a person, you're broken, you're hurting almost to the T. I can't tell you how many people have said it started out because somebody molested them or assaulted mm -hmm, them or they were mm -hmm. introduced to pornography. This comes from a place of brokenness. It's also, by the way, trendy. Gallup just put out a poll yesterday. More people identify as LGBTQ now than ever before, up by 1.1% from 2017. <laughs> I kid you not, made a headline. I thought, really? Okay, there's always a margin of error in every poll, by the way, so you're clearly already within the margin Three of error. Three to 5% uh, negative? <laughs> exactly right, exactly right. But the issue again for the church is, in this post-truth world, there's a theme in our conversation. You say, but you don't understand, my daughter now has decided that she's gonna change yeah. to a man. My yeah. son is, and you love that person and you just think, I can't, if I go in with that straight stick of truth, I'm gonna lose them, I'm gonna reject them. And I just talked to somebody <sighs> yesterday who said, yep. you have to ask yourself this question. Who do you love more? Have you made an idol of your child? And it was harsh, but it was true. Yeah. He said, are you making an idol of your child or are you being obedient to Jesus? Yeah. And I thought, okay, love says I love you, honey, but I cannot support that. 
Yeah, and uh, we all know parents, and uh, Cindy and I uh, are careful in the tales we share, but, you know, we've had kids that we've had to say, here's the door. Mm-hmm. You know, we love you, but we won't enable your sinful lifestyle. That's exactly right. We're here. We'll do anything we can to help you, but we'll not enable a sinful lifestyle. And, you know, that's hard. And, gosh, you and I both have friends who have, you know, taken different routes. But mm-hmm. this one, between religious freedom, between post-truth, which I'm now getting an education from being partial about. <laughs> uh, it just seems like the church is, we're going to be toast. I mean, at some level in the next four years in particular, the shift you know, could be tectonic. And yes. uh, it won't be just our pastor friend in uh, Canada who's in jail. You know, right. will you come visit me? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly right. But you know what, Michael? Do you not want to be one of David's mighty men? I mean, I love hero stories. I totally. one of my favorite movies in the world is William Wallace. I had the chance to talk to Randy Wallace on multiple occasions. Writes the screenplay, gets rejected over and over again. Yeah. He he discovers the character by going to the castle in Edinburgh, and there's a Scottish guard, and he says, "Who's this guy?" And he says, "Well, his name is William Wallace." That starts him on a journey, discovers who he is, writes the story, goes to Duke University, was going to be a pastor, realized that he could influence more through the power of words, becomes a writer, and the rest is history. But if you study that story, you would have to say, well, wasn't William Wallace a loser? He ends up being drawn and quartered. His body is cut up into four parts. It's sent to the four corners of Scotland. He lost. England wins. Long live the day. No, nope. the name that we remember is the man who said freedom. I'm going to fight for what is right. And in the end, even if he was physically destroyed, the legacy he left lived on. Do I think that it's going to get rough? Yeah, not because I'm reading the Washington Post, but because I'm reading the word of God. Mm. And it tells yeah. me, I mean, Matthew 24, I'm looking at my watch and I'm going, yeah, yeah. Now, it immediately, as it enumerates all of those signs, says, get excited because look, it means that your redemption draws nigh. It's going to come to an end soon. Yippee, the good stuff's going to start, but it is going to be tough. And so all of these songs that we sing on Sunday morning, now we get to put shoe leather to it. Are we really going to be found faithful? Have we said, I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back? Have we really said that we're going to pour out our life as an offering to him? Mm. I mean, it's one thing to sing it. It's another to put it in a day spring greeting card. It's a whole other thing when you're looking (laughs) at the opposition and they say, say yes or say no. And when that comes, his grace will be sufficient for the day. I'm not a fear monger. I'm not afraid. I don't know when he's coming. I get the sense sooner. But do I think it's going to get more difficult beyond a shadow of a doubt? And again, we're not here by accident. We're here by divine appointment. Doesn't that give you strength? It does me. Oh, I, yeah. I say it all the time in our church. I take my hand like a, a rah-rah fist and I go, another cheery Michael Easley sermon. Let me tell you, <laughs> <laughs> it's going to get worse, guys. Yeah, you know? that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but I go back to this 244-year blip on the screen. We think we're something and we're not. And you said it more eloquently than me, but you know, we were born today. Mm-hmm. Not in the 1700s. And that's a chilling and interesting thing to think about is that God said in eternity past, I want Janet Parshall to be alive in 2021, not in 1721. So, okay, two more. Woke culture. Are you woke yet, Janet? (laughs) Have you woke up? You know, Lewis Carroll writes Alice in Wonderland, and he talks about Jabberwocky, which is this uh-huh. unbelievably messy language that makes no sense whatsoever. This is Jabberwocky, woke think? culture, because who wants to <laughs> be asleep, perfect. right? It's like hate crimes, who wants to be a hater, right? I mean, so it's the manipulation of language. And of course, we little sheep cower because we hear this language and we go, of course, I want to be woke. Listen, every time you hear woke culture, what you need to hear at the same time is cancel culture. A woke culture 
rises on the horizon exactly the same time as a cancer culture does. The cancel culture says, I don't like your ideas. So rather than through intellectual strength saying, I can defeat your worldview because I have a better, stronger, more solidified, more verifiable worldview. That's not what we're happening. We're just going to censor you on Twitter. We're going to shut you down on Facebook. We're going to mock you on national television. We're going to say that tattoo parlors and abortion clinics can be open, but churches can't as soft totalitarianism takes the reign during COVID. So we're in the midst of this right now. It is a cancel culture. And picking up on what you said before, and I think, Michael, you and I can say this to our friends, this is not coming from a place of fear because I get news for you. I got my roll call right here. It says, wait a minute, this is what God, oh yeah, he didn't give me a spirit of fear, but here's what's in my backpack, power, love, and of a sound mind. So, okay, it's going to get rough. They're going to cancel. You and I have probably seen the same thing when you go down into the catacombs in Rome and you see where they carved that ichthus. We love slapping it on the bumper of our car. How would you like to do it? Because you lived in oppression in the Roman regime that said, we're going to feed you to the lions. And they recognized each other by writing these little ichthus on the wall of the catacombs when they were down among dead people holding their church services. Now, they persevered. The gospel still spread. It didn't stop with the crucifixions. And they were crucifying other Christians beside Jesus. They would line the Appian Way with people who were hung up on crosses as well. When you read Fox's Book of Martyrs and you realize the people that were giving their life for the cause of Christ, one martyr was such a feminine woman. She was pregnant. And they had a rule that you would not be martyred if you were pregnant. Her father said, please, please, for the sake of your child, give up Christ. She said, Mm. no, I won't. She has the baby. She gives the baby to her dad. She's taken out to the lions. And the thing that impressed me most is that her toga blew in the wind. And in modesty, she made sure that she covered herself before the lion ate her. Mm. Wow. Wow. Mm. You talk about being found faithful. She didn't recant for the cause of her child. She didn't recant for the fear of the lion's jaws. She stood her ground for the cause of the cross. Now, that's first century Rome. Those were dumb people, right? In the first century Rome, they don't know nothing, really. They knew more than I knew. They knew who Jesus was, and they were willing to give their all. So a cancel culture means it's coming our way, friends. Just continue to speak the truth in love. Be a Peter. Be a John. We can't stop talking about that which we've seen and heard. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It just flows out of us. And before they put a cork in it and silence you, just (laughs) let it flow right out of you. (laughs) A cork in it. Oh, gosh. All right. Last question. Where's your hope? You got grandkids. I got grandkids. You know, you and I, in our saner moments, yes, we're committed. You know, I'm willing to go to jail. I don't want my kids to go to jail. I don't want my grandchildren. Goodness gracious. Give us some hope. Well, the hope, Christ in us, the hope of glory. I mean, that's where our hope is. And hope never fails, the scripture tells us. I love that word, hope. It's hanging on fact, not feeling, taking us full circle in our conversation today. So the hope is the reality of who Christ is. Now, you talk about your kids and your grandkids. I'm with you. We're both people who'd be willing to stand in front of a running train for our family. Mm -hmm. So while I can, what I need to do is to build their character. You know, I can't ground my grown-up kids anymore. I can't send them to their room. But until I breathe my last— Wait, wait, wait. Have you tried? (laughs) I tried. Doesn't work. Okay. If anyone could, you could. I'm sorry to interrupt. It was too easy. (laughs) But I told my kids, until I breathe my last, God's called me to help build your character. 
And I will do that until the end. So I want them to fall in love with Jesus, not just by what Craig and I say, but what they see in our lives, how we react to the world around us. And that Jim Dobson said something years ago that I loved. He said, ultimately, values are caught, not taught. So I want them to see me living out authentic Christianity. And if they see that, that's the best way, should the Lord tarry, that will make them, I hope, strong, faithful, and courageous. And then likewise, they would pass it on to the next generation. Our grandbabies are watching us again. Let them see. I have one grandchild that said, oh, no, granny's going to do that Christian talk again. And I thought, that's okay. <laughs> you can see me coming, kids. You know what's coming. <laughs> you know, that, that just took me to a new place to be Janet Parsh's grandchild. Whoa. <laughs> well, can I tell you what? You talk about generational. My, my Scottish grandfather gets saved sitting in the back of Moody Church. That was my spiritual legacy, comes over from Scotland by way of Canada, goes to Moody Church, gets saved sitting in the back of the church one night, and he loved to tell us about Jesus. And my brother Charlie was only 14 months younger than I was, and we'd go visit, and we'd walk into their house, and he would see Grandpa Paul, and he had his Bible on the footstool, and we knew he was going to talk to us from the Word, and my brother Charlie would go, oh no, he was that (laughs) Bible man again. (laughs) Oh no. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think my adult children and grandchildren will probably say the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> but so when too. we're dead, they'll miss us. <laughs> in the market with Janet Parshall, the easiest way, obviously in the show notes and the podcast below, you can find out more about her. But all you have to do is put her name. That's two L's, P-A-R-S-H-A-L, Parshall, Janet Parshall in your search engine and go to any place where you listen to a podcast and you should subscribe to in the market with Janet partial and you can listen to her on Apple on uh, anywhere you get any podcast aggregate. You can find her Janet. You're a friend. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for coming on both programs. And um, I'm going to bug you again if you'll come back. Oh, I tell you what, my mom had a phrase. When you have conversations with somebody you really love who makes you think, she called them delicious conversations. So thank you, sir, for this delicious conversation. <laughs> amen. Amen. I'll, back to you. All right. Tell your thank husband you. I said hello. And again, thank you so much. Blessings to your friend. Okay. Thank you for the opportunity. Right. Bye-bye. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.